Today's topic is securing remote and hybrid work environments. Um, and joining me today, I have two esteemed panelists. Um, my name is Sean Sines. I'm a virtual, well, I'm a, a chief information um, security officer, as well as a CIO and CTO, as well as the guy who takes out the trash on Thursdays if the janitor is not available. Um, and joining me uh, today is Rick Live, who's a, a, an experienced chief information security officer himself. Uh, Rick, do you want to give a quick introduction? Yeah, sure. My name is Rick Live. I'm CISSP. I've been there to work for small companies, large companies alike, spanning the globe. Uh, my CISO experience is, like I said, all over the place. Right now, I'm currently working with a $5 billion a year insurance company as CISO. So, and there's some seniors they're purchasing up. So, that's a little bit about me. I've been doing this for 30 plus years. So, Laura, she is awesome and she knows everything. Okay. Wow. <laughs> okay. I'll call these guys. Um, that's a much better intro than I was going to give you. So, please. <laughs> I know. I mean, what the heck? Uh, so, I'm, I'm Laura Bishop and uh, my background is HR, privacy, and governance, risk, and compliance. I've mainly worked for large global companies. All right. So, again, our conversation points today really are about remote and hybrid work environments and security. Now, when we talk about security in those environments, we're not just talking about technology, right? So it's important that we consider other things like people um, as a part of the equation. Uh, for those of you who are joining us on Zoom, uh, you have the ability to anonymously ask questions of the panelists. And we're going to have a general discussion, but we've got moderation watching those questions and they'll feed them to us so we can, you know, kind of bring them up at the appropriate time in a conversation or near the end, we will review those that have been submitted so that we can respond. Uh, we do want this to be interactive. Um, the, the format really is evolving uh, as we look and change platforms this week. So there's some new, we may have some technical bumps, just bear with us. But uh, starting off, let's, let's talk a little bit about, you know, we, we've been through this huge transition in the world in the last three, four years, and everybody's tired of talking about it. I'm sure at this point, We've all heard about it. There's, I, I, I can't go a week without seeing another report or you know survey about corporate America basically either saying remote work is really, really good for people or remote work is really, really bad for people and everybody needs to go back into the office. And you know we, as security practitioners, can step back from that conversation. We have our own opinions, I'm sure. But when we talk about facilitating what a business wants to do, because that's really a business strategy. You know, let's talk a little bit about, you know, what are those challenges? And I'm going to start with Laura. What do you see as the biggest challenges related to the remote or the hybrid workforce these days with, with regard to cybersecurity? Yes. So from my perspective, it's always going to be people. <laughs> so from a governance um, perspective, um, I think, you know, people in the organization are still the greatest risk, especially when it comes to remote particularly when it comes to remote and even hybrid because they are in the office um, only part of the time. So ensuring that you have the right governance in place. But really, security training is huge for, for yeah. this space. Um, it's very, very important. I mean, the social engineering that's happening now and the hackers that are getting more and more sophisticated, um, it, it, we just, you've got to train your people. So for me, it always comes to the people. So when you say people, though, are you talking about the way the people work, uh, what they're doing when they work remotely? I mean, what uh, aspect of people is really the, the challenge? Um, so to me, it's, you know, you've got all of these employees working from home and they need to understand what the policy. Well, first of all, you should have policies around remote work, right? So um, and also around bring your own device. You know, what is the philosophy on that? Are you going to have that? If you do, you need a policy, probably need a terms and conditions. Um, so all, all of those types of things need to be set up. But then it's around the training so they understand um, what, what happens if they, if they get an email that seems suspicious. What is it that they're supposed to do? You know, sometimes when you're in the office, you immediately think, oh, I need to report this. But when you're at home... It, it, you're kind of in a different mindset. And so really helping people understand from a security awareness and training that here's what it looks like. There should be more and more training 
or probably heavier training done um, around the remote um, targeted training for those individuals that are in, you know, higher risk groups like HR and finance, um, even executives. Um, and it and it shouldn't be just on emails, right? Because it could be anything. It could be on a call. It could be a text. It could be anything. So um, helping them understand what does that look like? What do they need to do? Who should they report it to? How quickly should they report it? Um, but making sure that you have the guidelines in place. You know, family members shouldn't be using work devices. Uh, things that you wouldn't typically have as a challenge in the work environment, but you have at home. Um, I, I think those. that's why the policy and the guidelines are so important. Yeah, Rick, you know, one of the things that I, I, I kind of think about when, you know, I look at this whole model of remote work and, and as an organization, you know, Access Point, we're a fully remote company, right? All of our staff and we're security practitioners. So we yes. have access to client information that a lot of organizations probably would, you know, feel a little nervous granting access to, to remote workers. So it's necessitated, um, you know, not only the change in our policies, right? Teaching people how to handle data and how to get data, but how to behave as a team, I think, is also another factor that's different. Um, you know, Rick, what have you seen in, in your role as far as the, the actual threats or the, you know, the, the concerns that the leadership that you're working with as a CISO are concerned about? Pretty much, as the CISO, my concerns around a remote workforce are pretty much the same as everybody's, right? Unsecured networks. What do you have on your wireless at home? I cannot control your network at home, nor do I want to, right? I cannot control, I can't prove that you've not handed little Johnny your, your laptop for 10 minutes while you're in line ordering something to keep him quiet in the car, you know, things like that. So I worry about access controls. I worry about privacy, data privacy. I worry about unsecured networks and typical stuff. But beyond that, for me as a security practitioner, it's also about the human aspect that as Laura was leading down to, right? She's going there. How do you make your team feel like a team when they're really segregated? So I do things like daily standups. We do weekly one-on-ones. You know, we try to get the teams together more often. I'm here at, you know, Access Point, we have a virtual happy hour, you know, once a month where we get people together. We sit around and have a beer and drink and have a great time and just chat about anything in the world. So for me, it's around the device security and the people themselves. It's a little bit about everything. I mean, the remote workforce, but unsecured networks, phishing attacks, device security, and the team cohesion pretty much at the top of my list. Yeah, and I think your camera. You, Use your camera, yes. Really, yes. Your camera. When you're remote, it just yep. makes such a huge difference to be able to have that connection with someone. Um, yep. In my last role, it I started there and, and they were headquartered in Columbus. I'm in St. Louis. I was able to get to the office in one week and then everything shut down. And yet I had a team of people that I had to manage. And so, it, you know, it was a bit of a challenge. But I'll tell you, you know, having... Little things like that, using your camera, um, being able to connect with someone makes a huge difference. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that the, the people elements are, are very important. But the, the thing that Rick and you, Laura, kind of skirted around and hit on is that the, the real thing we need to be concerned about is data. Yeah. Access to data, what people do with the data. And, and that's no different, really, than it is when we're in a business setting, when we're sitting in an office with four walls and cubicles and whatever that looks like for your organization. Um, but it's it, it's kind of drawn the focus around, it's all about data, right? How we access data, what we can do with the data, where the data goes, how we store the data, how we dispose of the data. Same problem we've always had. Compliance. But now we've got uncontrolled networks, uncontrolled endpoints. And so, you know, how do we wrap our hands around those data controls to make it still flexible enough that people can do their jobs, even though they're not on the same physical network in the same physical building or on a campus or, you know, a series of WAN networks, you know, whatever kind of network structure. We're now looking at the world as a coffee shop, right? Yeah. And, and you know, a lot, a lot of traditional enterprises, where rejected the coffee shop model a long time ago. 
right? We, we put a lot of our security controls at the network layer. It stops people from getting in at the network. We stopped people from accessing resources across a network. We had intrusion detection, intrusion prevention, and firewalls. And all of these traditional network controls, when you have a physical control of that network backplane, that don't apply in a hybrid or a remote work. So how do we, how do we address that, Rick? What, what would you say? So, so some of things you can do to address that are basically a combination of things, right? Really, you know, technical policies, blocking workstations, you know, IAM, you know, ensuring that your access rights are accurate for the individual users. You can lock down the endpoints. So we prefer to give out a company-owned device rather than BYOD. Now, BYOD, there, there's an argument for both sides of this, and I don't mean to get in anybody's face about it, but... Literally handing out a, a corporate device, I can lock that device down. I can show more. I can show my compliance better. I can do training better. I can control that access better. If something doesn't go right, I can lock access to it immediately. So we can control the VPN or something along Zscaler. We can control the security access much better. We're a home network. If I were to switch off this laptop that I'm on now, go to my own personal machine, now we have no idea if it's got malware. I'm uploading malware. We have no idea that if we don't, is Brick's you know, operating system current without spending a lot of money in, in our infrastructure as the organization to ensure that all the endpoints are latest upgrade updates. They've got all the all latest uh, virus updates. They've got the operating system updates, et cetera. So for me, it's more around the unsecured networks that really are the problem, Sean. And controlling that through technical controls and through administrative controls are the combination that's really going to be the only, only way to be successful. So, again, we still can't control BYOD. You really can't. You can try. But let's be honest. We've all tried. No one's been 100% successful. And, but that goes back to you know, the basic rule of security. You know, if you have 100% security, you have zero functionality. You know, there's always a risk. There's always a balance there somewhere. So. From my perspective, it's really about training in users, working with the individuals, and adding some technologies to help your compliance and privacy, your data privacy. Laura, what do you think? Uh, well, you know, Rick, I don't know if you noticed, but Sean totally called us out before where he said we were skirting around the issue. I, know. I think data. I just, <laughs> we totally just got thrown under the bus. Um, I'm here. Thank you. So, <laughs> what a guy. Uh, <laughs> So I would say that, um, you know, everything that Rick said, but I think there's also the organization needs to look at, um, you know, their systems. Are there outdated systems? They need to look at um, also, you know, we talked about um, policies, but I didn't mention the password policy. So passwords are still uh, on a global scale, uh, one of the number one threats that people just don't have strong passwords. So. We've talked about access and, and, you know, Rick, you talked about a lot of the technical, but again, from my perspective, it's, it's the governance around how you handle the data. Where do you store it? Um, do, does the organization have a centralized storage area? Are people storing things on their laptops, their individual laptops? Are the laptops encrypted? So again, going back to some of those foundational things, what do we collect? Where is it stored? Where is it going to? Understanding all of that and then how to better secure it. So I, I, I totally answered your question. So I just want to be clear <laughs> exactly it is that you wanted yeah. to know. Well, so I think that the, the one word you used in that response that really needs to just be cemented in everybody's mind, and I've said this for decades, Right, as a practitioner, as an engineer, as an architect, as a CISO, as a consultant, understanding is yep. that critical thing. Yep. So, as we're looking at protecting data and we're looking at how people work, you know, we can turn on a bunch of physical controls, we can turn on a bunch of logical controls, we can define roles and access. But we, one of the biggest concerns, and this is one of the questions that we've had, you know, come presented to us, is just how do you you know, effectively manage hybrid workforce security without hindering productivity? Well, the answer to that is not easy. It's, you have to understand the business. You have to understand yeah. who does what, how they operate, what are the limits of how they operate, where do they connect from, where do they connect to, what types of activities do they do with the information? So are they logging into an application and entering data through a terminal? 
Are they opening an Excel spreadsheet that's on a SharePoint that anybody can access with the right folder access? And then understanding and profiling user behavior, profiling yep. user access, uh, understanding your network layers, where people connect from and to. Right? It's really all it comes down to understanding because without understanding, you can't configure your technologies to warn you when something is un. If you don't know what's normal, everything is un is abnormal. Yeah. So you respond to everything as a threat. Um, of course, there's some nuance there because it could also be that there's normal activities which have abnormal characteristics that you should care about. But starting with the low hanging fruit, right? You know, understanding how people work is the first piece that a security practitioner should engage with. You know, we talk about technology a lot as practitioners. We talk about, you know, configuring tools. We, you mentioned Zscaler, Rick, right? And, and, you know, that's a wonderful solution to, to manage a zero trust environment or to limit access and, and to monitor. Limit. But it doesn't work without understanding and rules. Correct. Um, and you've got to extend the training out to the end users. You've got to spend additional time to understand the business, what are the risks of the business? Because let's be honest, small businesses have a higher, bigger, bigger risk appetite. Larger businesses have a smaller risk appetite, right? So training the end users is critical. I'll go back to Laura. She's absolutely correct. Not only do you have policies, but you've got to educate your people on your policies, not just HR policies, but your technical policies as well. What should I do? What shouldn't I be doing? That's critical. I challenge is one group that you didn't mention that needs to be even more educated. Executives. Executives, they're the worst. Yes. No, I mentioned executives. I mentioned executives. Yeah. That's fair. You did. But, um, but again, understanding the culture and the business appetite of yes. the organization. Because a lot of the things that we've talked about doing, they take energy, they take effort, they take technology to do. And smaller mid-sized company, to your point, Rick, may have a broader risk appetite, but that doesn't necessarily mean that their regulatory or contractual requirements are lower correct and their their pool of resources let's just speak generically that's talking money people skills technology is obviously in most cases more finite and small to mid-sized businesses speaking as a business owner you know i'm focused on keeping the doors open and producing the products that we produce at the company if you came to me and said i needed to buy all of these tools that don't push my bottom line you better have a good business case for it. And you better be able to explain that to me. Um, yeah, that's the one thing a lot of security practitioners don't get, Krishan. And to your, to your point is, security practitioners don't realize that we're a cost. We are not profitable. We are not a profit center ever. Yeah. I don't care what anyone says. InfoSec well, is I'll not. I'll argue that. In the when you're an MSSP, that's different. <laughs> but that's your business. But InfoSec itself is not a profit center. So that's one thing we have to keep in mind, right? Because you don't spend $1,000 to protect 100 bucks. You just don't do that, right? And the smaller companies, they can feel that 100 bucks a lot more than somebody else can. So. Yeah, the other analogy I, I've often used is you don't put a vault door on a grass hut. Yep. Right? Because all, then somebody just goes through the wall. Yeah. Well, you know, all you're doing is deterring it. And it's the same kind of challenge with, with these types of conversations. So... Are there any other practical kind of tips that we would want to provide out to, to the audience today about, you know, how do you really get your hands around this problem? And how do you push towards a solution that at any scale, at any resource level is yes. the right thing to do first? Risk assessment. Absolutely need to understand your risk. You've got to do a risk assessment. You've got to update all your response procedures. You've got to define your roles, responsibilities cleaner. You've really got to have secure communication channels because you're external, because you're all over the place. You've got, and back to Laura, again, Laura's still still 100% right. It's that training. You've got to do training and regular testing, not just email, like Laura said. It's not just about phishing email. You've got to test your endpoints. Make sure that your antivirus is working. Make sure that your end users understand what a smishing attack is and how that affects the business, because that's something we're currently dealing with one of my clients. So, so how do we go about training people? I mean, what's the difference between this and a traditional phishing training that we've been doing for the last 20 years and hasn't really appreciably moved the needle? Content. Okay. That's really the only difference is content. 
uh, in my opinion. You still have to train them. You still got to go through training that's most effective for your business. You've got to find training that is relevant to your business. And that's the key thing, right? So if you give me training on HR stuff, okay, I'm like, you know, 3, 3% of my brain is looking at the HR stuff because 90% of my brain is looking at risk at all times. And I can't help it. It's who I am. It's what I do, right? So it's got to make it relevant. So as long as we can get that training relevant to the organization and to the role of the people, the success rate of that is much, much higher much higher. You actually get an engaged audience, which is critical to your security, especially in a remote environment. Yeah. I think to tack on, oh, I'm sorry, Sean. To oh, tack I'm, on, I'm uh, best of all to you anyways, because... Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm getting kind of bored just sitting here. Um, so I think that one of the things I want to tack on to what Rick said is making sure that it's, that the phishing, that the phishing attempts are hard, right? Because... I've been in organizations where, you know, IT will be wanting to do some kind of campaign and the executives will say, oh, you know what, we don't really own that. I mean, yeah. that that would really upset some people. Or that they exclude would, the most critical people like executives and finance. Yep. Right. right. And so I, I think that does, it, you get a little heartburn with that. Um, I, for example, we had a situation where um, the company wasn't getting bonuses. Um, and we sent out a phishing email that had, it was around compensation and HR lost their mind. And, and I, I mean, I totally get it, but that's but the what bad I, guys aren't going to respect HR's rules. Exactly. No. Exactly. Yeah. The kind of phishing that they need to be paying attention to, because, you know, if you have, and depending on how visible your organization is in the media and things like that, that's what they're watching. So of course they're going to go to those um, to those areas that that are you know where they can wiggle their way in. And so it's you've got to have that executive leadership and engagement to say yes. You know what? Do what you need to do. One of the things that I found to be successful was once. If, if in fact they clicked on it, then it would go to a screen that actually had the email that was sent and it had all of the arrows and things circled up. You know, this is what you can look for. This is what you can look for. Um, and, and I think that makes a difference because then it resonates with them. Yeah. Um, even when you put a banner, um, and I had this in an organization where they put a banner on, this is from an outside source. People still clicked on it. Yeah. I was so surprised. Where it appeared like it was an internal email, but it had the banner and they clicked. It had the yeah. banner. Yeah. So not only the subject line, but also in the so yeah, so really helping them understand what to look for. Uh, because everyone's going so fast or people are distracted or you know whatever it is, which is what they're hoping for, right? That's how they're going to get you. Yeah. The so, emotional connection and yes. timeliness are the ways that you trigger a phishing attack, right? Take a minute. Take a minute. And last time I mentioned, I think, you know, really tracking those repeat offenders and helping them understand, like, what's going on? Um, not necessarily be punitive, but what can I help you understand where, like, a two-minute phishing video that they get pushed to them is not doing? They may no. need face-to-face -face interaction. You know, it's interesting that you said don't be punitive because I've been observing a trend in mostly large enterprises the last few years when, you know, when we first started introducing phishing training and everybody was kind of like, oh, well, you just want to see the numbers and we want to see. And then we do this as an educational thing. There was a turn at some point in the last five or six years where all of a sudden it started to become, this is a performance metric. Yes. Because you're presenting this drastic risk to the company as the mailroom operator who clicks on a phishing link and I'm going to, you know, excuse you from your position if you click on four or five links. And the funniest part that I saw with that, and, and there's there's something to be said for people who are negligent, right? And then there's a difference yes. between those who make a mistake or those who are caught at the wrong moments, which can happen to any of us. And I have proven that with, and previously in my life when I was building a security awareness campaign for a large uh, agricultural company, that I manufacturing company that I worked for, uh, I had a bet with the CIO. And he bet me I would never get him with a phishing attack because he was just, and he was a great guy, brilliant, really, really on it. And, but, but he challenged me 
And, and then I was earlier in my career and, you know, he was like, you're never going to get me. So I did. And when I got him, I, I, I took that opportunity respectfully to sit down with him at lunch because that was the bet. If I got him, he bought lunch and we had a conversation. And I used that opportunity to say, okay, so you see somebody as smart as you still can fall for it. Yeah. Crafted right. You know, and, you know, of course, his argument was, well, my administrative assistant fell for it. It wasn't me. And I said, well, you're right. Doesn't matter. However, they were using your credentials yep. to log into right. your email. Yep. Yeah. Um, and, and so we had a great conversation, but I've seen this trend towards punitive discussions, and it really worries me because now we're scaring people away from reporting yeah. legitimate fish because they're worried that they click on a button and they're going to get scolded or fired. Um, and, you know, if, if you fail a math test, we're not smacking you with rulers anymore. Right. right. We set you aside and say, okay, what math theory didn't you understand about this? Yes. And we train you and then we retest you. And somebody may take three or four times to get it. These are complex concepts that not every person using a computer is really comfortable with. Um, I think we also have a lot of bias in, in security and IT people in that we expect everybody to understand technology the way we do. Um, and we don't always do a good job of empathizing with the people that we're testing. So to your point, Laura, testing very, very complexly, realistic simulations that are not easy gotchas, you ratchet it up over time. You baseline the program over time, and then you adjust that, and, and you focus, and you train, right? You talk, and, and you're open about it. We, we have want a question from the audience us. I want to address, Sean. Oh, sure. Go ahead. Uh, so we got a question from the audience. Says, How do you speak those executives and directories to state they're unfishable, right, or unfunctionable? And First off, they're fishable, like Sean just went through right there, right? But the way I try to approach them to get their attention is money, plain and simple. When it comes well right down to it, all we do every day, the decisions we make every day affect the bottom line, the dollars, especially in InfoSec, right? So if we have, so if we take credit cards, for example, right? We're taking credit cards online. We've got a retail store. It doesn't matter to me. We're taking a credit card. Now we're under PCI DSS regulatory requirements. We've got to go through an audit every year. We've got to prove every individual has been trained, right? If you don't train, there's a fine involved with that. Or you may not be able to get your report on compliance. And now you can't do business. Visa may decide to stop allowing you to accept Visa cards. So I try to approach the directors that are unfishable, the executives that don't want to talk about it. I try to approach them in the manner to show them actual money, right? This is what's going to cost us. Fines are cheap. The reputational loss oh, is expensive. Yeah. I can equate that to about a five-year loss in revenue by a breach because somebody did something stupid or somebody didn't do anything stupid. They actually just got breached with a really smart, intelligent breach, but they were untrained. So now the fine gets in there and then your reputation gets out that they're not, we're not doing the right thing. So I just didn't mean to interrupt anybody. I apologize. But that's, that's one thing I try to do and the approach I take with a lot of executives, because they understand dollars and cents. Yeah. They really do. Yeah, you have to speak the language of the audience. Yes. Right? And you have to change the message. And, and again, I think that the point here is you change the narrative. It's not yep. about a phishing test. It's not about whether you want to expose them to potential ridicule by their peers or to put them into a statistical pool where everybody is seen as capable or not. They're a risk group. The executives yeah. have access that many people in the company do not have, right? So they, in more than ever, they're, they're a higher risk than your factory worker in a, in a production facility. They may take a business line down, but they're not going to be exposing corporate information or intellectual property or secrets or, you know, plans or violating an SEC requirement for non-disclosure of financial operations. You know, that it really depends on the executive you're talking to, but the risk is greater. Now, how do you change that narrative? Help them understand that, you know, there's you have to understand those executives and their triggers. Um, yeah. For instance, in the CIO I mentioned, he was very competitive, right? So I turned it into a game with him. And then I was able to open that door because he wanted to, and it led to the next time of him conducting just an executive test, right? So the executives used it as an inter-executive competition. You know, to see who got and how long it took and all of that. But it, those results were never shared outside of that executive pool, right? Um, because there is that concern for public 
perception of, well, if an executive can fall for it and they're coming down on a, a general worker, they have to be careful about the culture of that. Um, but again, we have to, to reiterate that it's not about your position. It's about your access. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And hopefully that resonates with people running businesses. You know, your money, to your point, Greg. Yeah, a regulator is going to come in and ask for a sample. A good auditor will come in and ask for a sample, and they will include non-random characters in that sample, like, I want to see if your CFO's been tested. Yep. I've actually had that happen where QSAs actually ask us, prove me that your CFO's been trained in BCI compliance. Prove to me your CEO, because we were a company of 100 people. And a company of 100 people, a lot of times those execs won't take the training. They don't have time, in their opinion. Yeah. Well, in, in you know, one of the things that we've seen as an option for people to, and then we've gotten way off the, the remote topic. We've really kind of focused on fishing here. Sorry. But I think it's a nice organic connection. Um, you know, when we talk about controls and, and things we can do, obviously with fishing, there's ob- almost always a monetary component to it. It's not just about getting access. There's there's some monetary component. That's the motivator for the, for the bad actors, right? Yeah. Um, and we've seen organizations, HR is always quick to point this out as a benefit, which is, you know, credit account monitoring. And we've seen various levels of effectiveness around that. I don't know if you guys remember a few years ago, um, I think it was LifeLock, their CTO came out and put his social security number on the side of a, of a advertising van and drove it around New York City and basically dared hackers to try and hack him because he believed that their technology was so secure. Within six weeks, he was hacked. Um, you know, we don't want to go to that extreme, but you should be looking for those types of things, right? And then we took it in the corporate sense. We're looking to see, are there unusual transactions in the fulfillment system or purchasing? Is anybody, are there unusual transactions in the corporate card? Is there unusual access to key financial systems? You know, those types of things which we can't do with one, without one very important thing that we haven't really talked about. And this is a practical control that goes back to understanding the organization, which is logs. Yep. Same challenge that we said that people had with identity and access management, which existed well before remote and hybrid work became primary. They also is a parallel to that, which is monitoring and logging is a huge gap most companies. Yeah, I agree. We've seen companies say, put everything into the SIM and I'll figure it out later, which has a deleterious effect on your ability to find actual problems because you just created a stack of needles and you're looking for one needle. Um, Whereas on the other side, if you're not logging enough or you don't even have the ability to log something, how will you know if something happens? If the tree falls in the woods and no one's there to hear it, did it really fall? You know, not to get into, you know, metaphysics, but... I exist before I am. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> so, you know, with that in mind, how do we, what do we recommend uh, organizations do to focus around preventing data leakage? I, I really hate that term, but it, it is yeah. what it is. Um, for remote workers or hybrid workers who are going back and forth between the wall garden of our corporate enterprises. So one of the things I try to work with our clients to try to help them understand what DLP really is and what it isn't, right? So data leakage, you know, how do you prevent your data from being lost? I mean, we work with them and understand the platform. There's a lot of technology that goes behind data leakage. And I agree with you, Sean, I don't like that term either, but it is what it is. So you've got to have a lot of technology. You've got to have a lot of skill sets around that in order to effectively maintain that. Or you've got to have an MSSP, such as Access Point. I'm not trying to sell Access Point services. My point is simply you have to have somebody with knowledge that can help you with that. That, that. That was my only point there, right? So you can put all the phishing attacks in the world you want. You put all in your, you put in all your AI powered VPNs if you want. But in the end, if you're not logging like Sean was alluding to, and you don't have the skill sets to understand what's going into the SIM, what secure identification or identity verification means, you know, secure endpoint solutions, what does that mean? DLP. It's difficult to stop data leakage because you don't know what you're you don't know what you're seeing, you don't know what you're not seeing. Well, and the so, one time you stop something, it's a legitimate business transaction. It was a deal <laughs> every time. And all of a sudden you're you're yeah. standing on the carpet because you stopped business from doing what it needed to do. Right. And that's the the balance we all play as practitioners. Yeah. Monitoring the castle walls. 
And again, that still goes back to the business proposition now, Sean, really, when it comes to data leakage, it's what is the appetite of the company? What's the risk appetite? What are they willing to do? I mean, can they afford all these technologies or these additional consultants? It's expensive. It's not cheap. It's not cheap. You know, and so that has to go back to your, again, goes back to your original points, understanding the company and understanding what they're willing to accept, what they're not willing to accept, and what they have no choice but to accept. Yeah, and make sure everything's configured. So from, again, from just Joe Smith perspective, you know, we've got DLP, but do do you have the banner set up? Are you sure you want to click on this? Are you sure you want to forward this? This is a file that contains sensitive information, you know. So there are um, pop-ups that can be used too that will help make the person stop for just a second. Mm-hmm. before they do anything. And I think that's what's really helpful there is it makes them just pause and and say, oh yeah, I do need to do this or wait a minute, I probably need to check if, you know, so I think those things are are important too, to make it as simple um, and user-friendly for the employees as possible. I mean, just turning on tools, anybody can turn on. Agreed, agreed. If you can't get user interaction, user user buy-in, you're not going to get any more with them. I agree. Well, and, and to kind of take a step back from the enterprise model, right, where enterprises tend to have more resources, for smaller companies that are using services like a SaaS service, for instance, the Microsoft models are very different between the small business licensing and the enterprise license. You know, everybody looks at the golden you know, monkey that is the E5 that comes with all the security features but it costs an exorbitant amount of money per user in a large company. In a small company, you may be able to absorb it better, but you probably don't want to expend your money there. However, even at the basic level of like Microsoft Business Premium, there are audit logs. You may not have a SIM, but you have audit logs. And you can, if you have an IT staff, there's another challenge, right? Um, This is why internal skills often are lower than our tool capabilities in many companies. We buy advanced tools that give us a lot of information, but we have nobody to consume it. Um, and that's another piece is we've got to think about being data consumers as security practitioners rather than tool managers. Agreed. Uh, getting out of the addiction to tools and start focusing on data is really the shift that the, comp- the organization yeah. needs. And, and where we have some efficiencies coming out in the industry these days, and there's a lot of hype behind it, which is artificial intelligence and machine learning, right? And, and I could go on a rant about how those terms are misused and have been misused for a decade. But when you're a small shop and you're leveraging, uh, you know, one or two people to do 12 jobs, having the ability for knowing what's normal because you've got an algorithm and anal- analyzing it rather than having a conversation with the business is an accelerator and is something people should consider is adopting technologies that can do that for you and to make your team more efficient at finding actual problems. With that, um, I want to, again, reiterate to everybody who's attending, um, if you've got any questions, if you're in the um, uh, Zoom, you can post those into the question and answer. They will show up anonymously for the panelists. Um, but uh, we are about 45 minutes into the talk. At this point, we generally try and turn it over into prepared questions. We have one last prepared question that I want to put before the panel, and then I'll kind of take a step back. And it's tied to what I was just kind of ranting about, which is, you know, what's the role of AI and machine learning in identifying and mitigating security risks with remote work? I mean, how do, how do we see that as a tool, right? So using AI... As, as a tool for your remote workforce or to understand your data flow is really what goes back down to, right? We're going back down to data again. What's actually moving? What's going from point A to point B? What's going to point F, et cetera? Understanding what your business looks like is critical before you can do that. So understanding the baseline of your business, understand the baseline of your data is critical. Once you have that baseline, then you can see what's abnormal, what's normal, what's not normal, what's new. So when you, for example, start doing projects, you're expecting a change, right? So now you have that expectation set ahead of time. You see that change. Okay, it's fine. But wait a minute. That's not the change I saw over here. So understanding that baselining, understanding what the AI can do for you. Some of the AI that I, I like to use um, is 
I can't completely can't put that name, but I'm trying not to sell anything, so I'm trying to be careful how I how I describe it. So <laughs> anyhow, there are some there's some AI second generation like uh any malware out there tools. You can go find the CrowdStrikes, you can find all those guys out there. So you can use some of those tools to help you with your AI. I'm trying not to sell anything, so I apologize for stumbling over my own words here, folks. <laughs> okay. Uh Laura, what are your thoughts on the use uh, of AI and ML? Why are you throwing me a technical question? Well, it, it's not a deeply technical question. It's, I mean, I'm going to challenge you. That's why. Tell on me, Yeah, I don't. So I actually just started reading some articles around AI and privacy. So I, I really do, it because there are so many implications there as well. Um, I really don't have any uh, additional input. So. Thank you, Sean, for spotlighting my... So what, what you meant to say, because if I prompt you on this, you'll get there, is the, the advantage of using AI and ML is to discover data types and help with the labeling of data so that we can put you know, more controls around data privacy. I'm supposed to know that you should... You're HR. Don't you know everything? <laughs> no, no. It's, yeah. it's, I mean, so I, I agree with you. It, you, you know, it starts with kind of a data inventory, then you have to figure out, you know, of that, what, how are you classifying the data? And then what does that mean in terms of the protection around that data? You're not going to protect internal data the same way you would protect privacy data, critical data, restricted data. Um, and a lot of organizations don't have that. Uh, a lot of organizations don't have a data inventory. They have... They know what they think they collect, but until they start asking the questions and also understanding where the data flows to and and flows from. So, because, you know, when when it comes to now, you know, I'm going to say privacy and then I'm going to go off on a tangent. But if you think about privacy and you think about data subject rights, they have the right to be forgotten. If you don't know what data you have and where it lives and where it goes... You're going to be out of compliance, yeah. and that's going to be a pretty hefty fine. Yeah, that goes back down to the basic business, though. If you don't need that data, why on earth would you hold that data? Well, we are all data hoarders, all of us. I understand that, but we're trying, everybody, but trying we all to change our customers' minds about that. I mean, just because you can doesn't mean you should. But, yeah. but your point is data retention is another key component to protecting remote access, too. I mean, you totally. may need to archive business records for seven years. But do they need to be stored online and accessible to somebody who's not in the house? Right? As an example, I had a, an employer. When I first got out of the military, I was 10 foot tall and bulletproof. Trust me. When I first got out of the military, I went to work for a company. I'm sorry. Does that I'm sorry. Really, I said, has that changed? I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> I, I'm a little shorter. I'm a little shorter now. <laughs> Osteoporosis. That's what we blame. Yeah. Right. So when I got the military, one of my first employers out of the military, I just got notified two weeks ago that they lost my HR records. I am almost 60 years old. Why on earth would somebody have my records from 30 years ago? You know, that, that, that's insane. It's now cost them money in monitoring my credit. I didn't expect, I didn't accept their monitoring fee because uh, personal belief is you should not have that kind of data. So I'm asking them the hard questions and they don't want to answer me. So just keep that in mind. I mean, that, that's one of the things I want to make sure we brought up is, you know, if you don't need that data, my God, take an inventory of your data like Laura was talking about and get rid of it. Seriously. Well, that it's really effectively goes back to reduce your attack surface. Absolutely. Right? Um, yeah. yeah. If you don't have data to attack, they can't steal your data. Correct. Well, and on a separate note, discovery, right? I mean, the less data you have, yeah. I mean, you have to obviously keep what is legally required. But, you know, an area, and I think this is a huge area, and we could spend an hour talking about this because I think this is another gap in in company, not only policies, they might have a policy and they might have a retention schedule, but that's it. They like stop short of, you know, here's the retention schedule. So you guys just, we're going to expect that you do what you need to do. And that doesn't, that doesn't really happen. So it's really it, interesting. I have a background in, in, Legally discovery and forensics. I ran a forensics lab for a while, um, cyber forensics. And the funniest thing is we would go in with an open discovery request when we were doing employment law support for cases. Like, you know, um, we often represented employees in employment matters. And they would say, well, 
you know, these emails existed where I was, you know, somebody was talking bad about me or that there's unprofessional records or communication. And we, we were tasked to go in and collect that information. And the thing is that almost every time we would have to overestimate the amount of or the volume that we had to store, right? Because we knew we would go into somebody's exchange server and we would find everything back to the last migration or beyond. And this is in the days of on-prem exchange. It's a little different in kind of the cloud space these days because that storage costs money. So people are more likely to purge it. Um, but when I say more likely, I mean like by 2%. It's, yeah, I was going to say not, not that likely. <laughs> it's not a huge difference. We still have the same data proliferation problem. And then, you know, with the advent of data lakes, data lakes were meant to free us from this structure <laughs> of nightmare that we have. Yeah, well, they we do. Right. Everything into a giant blob, and then we just yep. consume the information out of it. What we've actually done is we've now replicated structured data in unstructured structures. Oh, that, that's a weird way of putting that. Um, and, and then it proliferates because we're not going to get rid of the structured data because I need to know when I go to SharePoint where those files are. But at the same time, I've now fed all of that information into a data lake so that I can extract the marketing data, the demographic data, the, you know, the, the characteristics of the files for other purposes. And so our data problem is data becomes cheaper and cheaper to store, becomes worse and worse for most organizations. Um, I don't know when the last time I cleared off my personal hard drive was from stuff that I've been collecting for years. Right? There's files in my, my documents personally that I've not opened since 2017. Mm-hmm. Why do I have- I keep documentation so I can repurpose certain pieces of it. Absolutely. We all do that. Yeah, we do. I got one more topic I just want to touch on real quick. Plus, I don't want to go deep into detail here, but a remote workforce, one of the things that I personally think that we need to make sure that our understand our clients understand is updating your incident response plans. That is so different when your employees are not sitting around a conference table banging out their laptops and going at it and finding the problems and following incident response plan and bang, bang, bang. It's so different when they're remote. You no longer have the ability to banter like you do, like we are right now, because we're all in the same room. You don't have people doing the same thing. They don't know what they're doing. You have executives beating on one guy and it makes them go this direction. Update your incident response plans. And an incident response plan is something you follow. It's incident response is not something that you wing. I've seen a lot of companies build an instant response plan. They go, oh my God, and they, and they try to wing it. It doesn't work that way. Walk through your instant response plan. Make sure your instant response plan is actually reflective of your business in the hybrid model or the remote model. And test it's it. Critical. Tabletops, make sure there's cross-functional teams involved, yep. HR, government affairs, public affairs, communication. I mean, in smaller companies, same thing. Whoever... Potentially, could be they all need to have their own playbooks, so everybody need, knows what to do. So there isn't any, oh, you know, winging it. They what yeah. Brett was talking about. So I yeah. think testing it is one of the big things too. Well, we do fire drills to make sure people know how to exit a building appropriately, right? But for some reason, we struggle with the idea of an incident response drill. <laughs> I, I don't know why. But That's why we make a living, Sean. <laughs> we, we have spent many years and many hours helping yes. companies with this. But um, so I, I think we want to wrap it up with some final thoughts and just kind of summarize uh, our positions on the topic. I'll start with Laura. So, in the context of the discussion today, what do you think are the key takeaways uh, that people should have around, you know, hybrid workforces and remote workforces and you know, information security? So I'm always going to go to the governance piece of it. Um, so I think, you know, having the policies that you need, uh, data governance, records retention, password policy, um, you know, all, all of the policies that are related need to be understood by all employees. Security awareness training is critical and key. Um, meeting people where they are in terms of, you know, how it should be trained. One thing that I also would, and, and we really didn't touch on, um, we talked about last time, you know, auditing or internal assessments. I think with remote work and securing the environment, those need to almost be stepped up. You know, the internal assessments of really looking, okay, are we still where we need to be? 
I think that it, we we didn't really call it out. I mean, I, I think it's probably a given, but really making sure that you're stepping up and and looking at those assessments on a regular basis yeah. from you know from a remote perspective since it is so different than being in the office. Agreed. And for me, it's about risk assessments, right? You make sure that your risk assessments are up to date because they're so different. Your risks are so incredibly different between a remote workforce and an in-office workforce. Keep that up. Make sure you've got your instant response plan updated and tested and educate your users. You've got to educate, plain and simple, because everything is different when they're working at home. It just is. And do regular yeah. testing. That, that's right. I, mean, I think my takeaway is really, again, go back to what I said, which is the better you know the business, the better you know how to defend it. And yeah. know what's normal and what's not normal. And then set up things like logs. Check your logging strategy. Make sure you're yeah. actually logging the right things so that you can even know when something happens. But to, to kind of roll up what Laura was talking about that we touched on but didn't dive into, I would say one of the bigger concerns or risks that's increased with um, remote work and hybrid workforces is insider threat. Whether malicious or, ac- or accidental, yeah. insider threat is, is a big factor that you have to think about. Um, and that goes back to knowing where the data is and how it's used and where it moves, and where it shouldn't go and where it should go, you know, and what kind of data you have. That all wraps up into that threat profile and should lead to a good risk assessment so that you can appropriately create controls to contain or mitigate or treat. We just make it treat because there's ways, different ways to treat it. Mitigation is only one of them. Yeah. Um, to treat the risk that the organization has with. So again, I want to thank you guys for a great conversation and of course, a little friendly chiding. Thank you, Laura. Um, of course, anytime. <laughs> and uh, just for those who are interested in joining us next week, uh, our topic for discussion is going to be the recently announced changes to SEC breach notification and for private uh, and public companies. And I say private because many, many private companies are in the business of acquisition. And if you buy a public company, you now are bound by those things. You know, Rick can go on for that for about like 30 minutes nonstop. So we're going to have a moderation, I'm sure. Um, but, you know, ultimately, we appreciate you attending the session. If you're watching it and recorded, you know, feel free to leave feedback. And at the uh, end of this session, we will be sending out surveys for your interest to identify new topics you'd like to discuss and to give us, you know, a little bit of how did we do and, and then what can we change to make this a better and more educational uh, opportunity for all of you. So again, thank you for visiting the virtual CISO happy hour and we look forward to uh, seeing you in the future. Thank you.